Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Life, Family, Liberty. I am your host, Jonathan Keller, CEO and President of California Family Council. Happy to be joining you today on Monday, April 24th in Fresno, California, where I am taping this. It is just after 9 a.m., and we have a lot to discuss today. Hopefully, you've all had a wonderful weekend. Man, it it seems like things just keep coming faster and faster. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion. You may have seen some in the news about this being the big week for two key things. If you listened to Hugh Hewitt earlier today, you may have heard that it is the 100-day deadline, so to speak, for President Trump is this Saturday. There's been all these stories being written about what does this mean for the Trump administration? What does this mean for conservatism? What does this mean for the movements regarding the sanctity of human life, the importance of marriage and family, and the necessity of religious liberty? How does this deadline affect things? Well, first off, I just want to say that I do agree to a certain degree with President Trump that this is a little bit of an artificial deadline. It is not something that is anywhere in the Constitution. It's not in statute. It really is just kind of a creation of the media age that we are living in. Everything has to be quick, quick, quick. It has to be fast. It has to be aggressive. You have to have everything done yesterday. And as a result of that, you have this artificial deadline that's been created by the news media and by the pundit class talking about 100 days. And if something doesn't happen within the first 100 days, then, you know, the presidency is a failure. Well, I don't think that's actually the case. I think that what we have seen is that there is actually a real revolution, a real sea change happening in the country. And we're seeing some key things. If you listened again earlier today to any of the shows, or if you listened yesterday on any of the Sunday shows, you may have heard Reince Priebus, the president's chief of staff, talking about the fact that President Trump has signed 28 key pieces of legislation. But I think the most important thing that has been a success of the Trump presidency so far has been the nomination and then successful confirmation of Judge Neil Gorsuch. Later in the show, we're going to talk with one of the attorneys from Alliance Defending Freedom. Actually, in the very next segment, make sure you're tuned in because Caleb Dalton, an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, will be joining us to discuss the court arguments last week in the Trinity Lutheran v. Comer case back in Washington, D.C. Caleb works with Alliance Defending Freedom, and he was actually inside the Supreme Court room. He was admitted to the bar in front of the Supreme Court, and he was part of that team that helped prep this really important religious liberty case. Then a little bit later in the show, we will also talk about not only Justice Gorsuch, but there is a rumor coming that there may be another Supreme Court vacancy by the end of this summer. So we have some audio that we want to play on that coming up, which I think is going to be very important. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to play first, just to start off here, a couple of clips regarding, I think, an important positive sea change that you're starting to see across the country. You may have seen over the weekend, Jim ended his show by talking about the desperation of the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Tom Perez. He is really, I think for lack of a better phrase, he's kind of losing his mind <laughs> on these issues. He's he's swearing to large crowds of people. He is really getting you know angry and vitriolic. Well, the problem is that Tom Perez is trying to show that he is very tough. And I, I want to pause for a second and remind people, 
Uh, at California Family Council, we are not a partisan organization. We do not cheerlead for the Republicans or the Democrats on a partisan basis. However, we do appreciate anybody who stands for the sanctity of human life, the importance of family and marriage, and the necessity of religious liberty. Well, historically, this was something that both parties agreed on, a lot of these issues. You go back to the 1990s. There was a law that was passed, the Defense of Marriage Act. This was the law that defined federally marriages between one man and one woman. That was 21 years ago. Do you know who signed the Defense of Marriage Act into law in 1996? President Bill Clinton. Now, I think the irony of a Defense of Marriage Act being signed by President Clinton, (laughs) uh, that's probably not lost on a lot of people. But the sad thing is that since then, you have seen the Democratic Party move drastically to the left on a lot of these issues. Even as recently as 2009 on the pro-life issue, you had a large contingent of Democrats in the House of Representatives that believed the pro-life issue was so important they were willing to hold up and stop Obamacare because they were concerned about abortion funding. Well, I want to tell you what happened and then tell you why I think the Democrats are now trying to backpedal. There is now a civil war going on within the Democratic Party. Within the Democratic Party, you have people like Tom Perez who and Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi They realize that in many parts of the country, including right here in Fresno, California, uh, especially in the South, uh, in the Midwest, they realize that abortion extremism, that is abortion being legal through all nine months of pregnancy and being paid for by taxpayers, abortion extremism is not popular. It is not something that the American people want. And as a result, they're realizing that if they ever hope to win in any of these red districts or in these purple districts in the future, they're going to have to change their position and be willing to be a big tent party again. So over the weekend, Tom Perez said that he would be open to making a change on this issue. He would be he would be open to supporting a mayoral candidate from Omaha, Nebraska, who is a Democrat, but he is a pro-life Democrat, a quote-unquote anti-choice Democrat. Well, here's the problem, and I'm going to play this clip from Chuck Todd. He is interviewing Nancy Pelosi, and this is what uh, Chuck Todd and Nancy Pelosi uh, had to say yesterday on Meet the Press. What should unify the Democratic Party? What should make somebody a Democrat and not a Democrat? And I ask it in this way. There's been a lot of back and forth um, especially among abortion rights activists, about a decision of the Democratic Party to support a candidate for mayor in Omaha, a Democrat, who happens to be uh, pro-life. And there are some that, and at some point, the Democratic National Committee chairman actually had to put out the following statement after three days of back and forth. He said, I fundamentally disagree with Heath Mello's personal beliefs, the candidate for Omaha mayor, about women's reproductive health. It is a promising step that the candidate now shares the Democratic Party's position on women's fundamental rights. Each candidate who runs as a Democrat should do the same because every woman should be able to make her own health choices, period. Can you be a Democrat? Why don't you interview Tom Perez? Let me ask you this. But can you be a Democrat and the support of the Democratic Party if you're pro-life? Of course. Of course, I have served for many years in Congress with members who have not shared my very positive, uh, my family would say, aggressive position on promoting a woman's right to choose. But what you asked at the first part of the question before you went off uh, was about what unifies Democrats. And what unifies, people say to me all the time, oh, you're, you do such a good job unifying uh, the House Democrats. I say, I don't. Our values unify us. 
We are unified with our commitment to America's working families about job creation, about uh, budget policies that invest in the future, good paying jobs. And that's what we'd like to see a debate on vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, the President of the United States. He promised jobs. Right. Show us the jobs. Where's his infrastructure bill? There are many promises made, right. promises unbroke, uh, uh, broken. And, and here's the thing. Right. Where's the infrastructure bill? The president was supposed to have a in strong infrastructure bill come in. The infrastructure bill is one of the biggest uh, secrets in Washington, D.C., second only to the president's not showing us his tax returns. <laughs> I, I just love at the very end there, she throws in again the tax returns. So the thing that's key to point out about this is, like I said, there is a civil war right now that is going on within the Democratic Party. There's a civil war between the people who want to win elections and the radical hard left pro-abortion movement. Now, folks, if you're listening to me today, I bet you almost anything. If you're like me, if you're like probably 99% of Americans, you have members of your family that are pro-choice. You have friends that are pro-choice. You might even, if you're listening, you yourself might even be pro-choice. I'm not talking about Americans that struggle with the abortion issue and, you know, say, well, what about this certain case or this certain case? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the professional pro-abortion movement, the people at Planned Parenthood, the people at NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League. By the way, that's a real organization. I'm not making that up. The National Abortion Rights Action League. Groups like that are aggressive. And you even heard Nancy Pelosi in her quote here. She said, some of my family would say I have an aggressive support for women's right to choose, as she calls it. Here's the problem. And the reason why Nancy Pelosi went off on a tangent and started filibustering and talking about infrastructure bill and tax returns and everything. The Democrats realize that they cannot win in many, many, many parts of the country without there being a radical change in the way they approach abortion policy. But they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because if the Democrats like Nancy Pelosi, and if we have time later in the show, I'll play a clip from Senator Bernie Sanders, Democrats like Nancy Pelosi and then independents like Senator Sanders realize that there is no way for them to be able to win while placating the aggressive professional pro-abortion base that they have. They either have to choose, do we want to appeal to moderates and to independents, to people that are maybe pro-life Democrats historically, or do we want to continue to be funded and do we want to have the support of the radical fringe activists on the left? It's a really tough place to be in. I'm glad that as pro-lifers we don't have to face that. Uh, when we come back, as I said, we'll be talking with Caleb Dalton from Alliance Defending Freedom here on Life, Family, Liberty. Welcome back to Life, Family, Liberty. This is Jonathan Keller, CEO of California Family Council. Happy to be back with you again. And I'm also happy to be joined again for the third consecutive week. This is so far our record. Hopefully we can keep the streak going in the future. Uh, but our good friends at Alliance Defending Freedom, one of the best organizations in the United States that works to defend the rights of Christians and people of all faith everywhere to live and practice their beliefs, uh, my friend Caleb Dalton. Caleb, thanks for joining us today. Jonathan, thanks for having me. Hey, I wanted to make sure I didn't botch your title. So can you tell everybody what you do there at Alliance Defending Freedom? Sure. Uh, I serve as legal counsel at our Center for Academic Freedom, where we uh, defend the rights of religious and, uh, and conservative students to speak freely on uni public university campuses and to 
associate together for the purposes of spreading the gospel and, and spreading whatever political message uh, that they may have. That's awesome. Well, I, I think your work there at ADF really has an impact on one of the bills that we wanted to talk about today. One of the bills that's actually going to be heard, I believe, tomorrow in Sacramento, SB 320. But before we get to that really quick, I wanted to just uh, get a little bit of an inside scoop. You also had a very unique opportunity last week in Washington, D.C. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, I had the, uh, the blessing to be able to be sworn in uh, to be a member of the bar of the United States Supreme Court. And it was right before the arguments in the Trinity Lutheran case. And I don't know if your uh, listeners are familiar with this case. It's a case where in the state of Missouri, they have a tire scrap program. And this uh, program helps resurface playgrounds uh, that have, you know, old uh, rough surfaces. And it, it puts down these soft tire surfaces. And they give out the grants. And uh, our clients, uh, a preschool, applied for this grant. They were number five out of over 40 applicants, uh, qualified for the grant. And then when the state found out that the preschool was affiliated with the church, they said, no, you're denied. Uh, you, know, wow. you, you can't have access to this grant. So that, that's kind of the background of the case that the Supreme Court was hearing last week. And you were there, obviously, the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about Supreme Court oral arguments, we see all these procedural dramas on television, and we think that it's a a five-week trial, but Supreme Court oral arguments are actually extremely short, correct? Yeah, they do. They last less than an hour for for both sides to make their arguments. In the typical case, you know, there's a covered once in a while in, in highly complex cases with multiple parties, the court will let the argument go on longer, um, uh, but yeah, typically less less than an hour for both parties to make their case before the court. Well, and in this case, it was one of those. Uh, even though it was very controversial, it was still, as again, as I believe I understand it, thirty minutes for each side, pro and con. And I know it was your colleague David Cortman really just did a great job. I uh, I've not had a chance to hear those oral arguments yet. I know they're going to release them on the Supreme Court website today, so I'm yeah. looking forward to listening to them and hearing Mr. Cortman uh, bat back and forth the many questions. But real quick before we move on to the the bill SB three twenty. Anything in particular that you thought that stood out from those oral arguments, either you know particularly uh, interesting questions from any of the justices, or a, maybe a great reply from uh, your colleague David? Certainly, I, I, you know one of the most surprising things I think for some was to hear some of the justices who may be considered uh, more more liberal, maybe less inclined toward uh, toward preserving religious liberty. Some might might think that, but um, for example. Uh, Justice uh, Kagan asked some some really probing questions of the state, and Justice Breyer really, I think, he and Kagan both understood that really every child's safety matters, and that government shouldn't treat the safety at religious schools any different than they do at secular schools. It's a really an issue of fair play, of equality for everyone, and not discriminating against religion. And I think they really got that. I, I was came away very encouraged. I think from the argument that. All the all the justices, I think, got a little bit of a grasp of why you know equality matters in this case. That you shouldn't be able to treat religious schools, religious children, differently than than those in secular situations. Well, obviously, we're very excited 
and grateful for the work that you and your team there at Alliance Defending Freedom did. I know your colleague, Christiana Holcomb, who was with us last week, was also admitted to the bar at the Supreme Court. She she held out on us. She didn't tell us that was happening. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really... Yeah, she's too, too modest. Well, I, I'm really grateful for you guys. And again, folks, if you want to find out more about Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, just uh, make sure you go to their website, adflegal.org. And Caleb, what is your Twitter account? We're, we're still going to talk about SB320, but I want to make sure in case people are tuning out, what's your Twitter account? Sure. It's uh, at J. Caleb Dalton. Awesome. And I know Caleb puts forth some great information there on Twitter and publishes some great articles and uh, resources there at adflegal.org as well. So moving forward back to the state of California, we talked about this briefly last week, folks, with Greg Burt, and we're going to give a recap in a couple segments here with Greg Burt on some other issues. But one of the bills that is really just absolutely outrageous in the state of California, and I think touches on some of the work that Caleb and his team are doing defending the rights of students is SB 320. Now, this bill was introduced by State Senator Connie Leva out of Chino, California. She's a Democrat. And like we talked about in the last segment regarding abortion extremism, I think you see that very few places more clearly than in the state of California. Really, it's a race to the bottom to try to figure out how they can be more aggressively pro-abortion in every area. One of those areas is on college campus. So, Caleb, I told you about this bill last week, the fact that this bill would actually it would mandate that every student on campus, every student in the state of California who goes to a California State University campus or a University of California campus, all of them would now be required to fund chemical abortion drugs through their student fees. It's kind of a state-based, a college-based version of the HHS mandate. But tell us why you and your colleagues are concerned about things like this that impose on students' pro-life beliefs and their religious liberties. Absolutely. I mean, a bill like that that would force every student, you know, those who who hold the value of unborn human life so dearly and would force them to pay to terminate and and kill that life. I mean, that's that's really outrageous. It sounds to me like it's a almost a, a second version of like you said the HHS mandate cases where the the federal government tried to come in and tell businesses they had to pay for uh, for drugs that that they believed caused. Uh, and induced medical abortions. And, the, you know, the Supreme Court struck that down in the HHS mandate case uh, under our, our federal religious liberty uh, statutes. But uh, this sounds like the same thing right here, where the, the university is trying to force students to violate their conscience, to use their, their own money, really, to pay for something as abhorrent to them as what they consider to be a murder of a child. Yeah, and I, I certainly hope that this is something that if either Senator Leva does not pull this bill, it's something that you and your team can help us. I know we've already been in consultation about ways we may be able to push back against this. Caleb, we have just about 60 seconds left here, but I know you just filed a brief in a very key case in the state of Georgia. Oh, absolutely. So in Georgia, Georgia Gwinnett College, we have a client who is who's trying to share the gospel on his campus. He's uh, just handing out tracts, telling anybody who would listen about the love of Jesus Christ. And uh, someone complained. The police told him, hey, you can't speak you know, publicly here on campus. You, we have a speech zone. You have this point zero zero one five percent of the entire campus. That's the little square you can go if you reserve it ahead of time. So, you know, being a good student, he decided to follow the rules, even though slightly unconstitutional. Um, so he reserved the space ahead of time. He went to this point zero zero one five percent of campus to where he was constricted to share the gospel. And even there, the police came up and said, 
someone complained, you can't share the gospel here anymore either, which means you can't share the gospel anywhere on campus. Yeah. Um, so, and to clarify, this is a this is a state school. <laughs> absolutely, this wow. is a, a public university, and in, in which the First Amendment applies in full. The government can't come in and tell you what you can and can't say, or determine that your words are offensive and therefore not protected. That's a very purpose of the First Amendment is to come in and protect speech that some people don't like. If, if the First Amendment doesn't protect that, it doesn't protect anything. Wow. Well, this is something that we are, we're very, very clear that we need to be fighting back on the rights of academic freedom and religious liberty and freedom for everybody. This is something why I'm so grateful that Alliance Defending Freedom and uh, Caleb Dalton and his team are really doing a great job on defending the rights of every student, every individual to freely exercise and practice their religious beliefs. Caleb, just one more time, uh, your website obviously is adflegal.org and people can follow you on Twitter at jcalebdalton, correct? That's right, Jonathan. We really appreciate partnering with you and the great work you do out there in California. Thanks, Caleb. Well, hey, God bless you and your family. I look forward to seeing you in D.C. when I'm there in a few weeks. And folks, we'll be back on Life, Family, Liberty in just a few minutes. Thanks for listening in. Welcome back to Life, Family, Liberty. I am Jonathan Keller, CEO and President of California Family Council. Happy to be joining you. Very grateful to our friend Caleb Dalton from Alliance Defending Freedom for joining us the last segment. They're just such a wonderful organization, and we are really grateful to partner with them and all the work that they're doing here in the state of California and around the country. And obviously, things that happen in California don't just stay in California. They really do affect and they ripple out to the rest of the nation. And so often they end up either in court, uh, they end up being affected by cases like the Georgia Gwinnett State College that Caleb was talking about at the end, or they end up being affected by things that happen at the Supreme Court. That's why last week's oral arguments in the case of Trinity Lutheran v. Comer were so consequential. Uh, Something that happens in the state of California, oftentimes we can feel frustrated, we can feel discouraged because we see the overwhelming majorities that they have up there in Sacramento. But this is a key reason why we need to continue to pray, we need to continue to work, and also look to what happens and defend uh, great justices and great cases and great organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom. On that note, I actually wanted to kind of give a follow-up on the Supreme Court. There's there's actually been some very interesting interesting developments in that regard. And uh, let me play you a report yesterday uh, regarding a interesting development about a potential additional Supreme Court justice retirement. All right, and now to the report that Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy may be ready to step down after nearly 30 years of who is 80 years old, was appointed by President Reagan and has been on the court since 1988. He is considered the court's pivotal swing vote. And part of his legacy is the newest justice, Neil Gorsuch, who was one of his clerks. Our chief White House correspondent, Jonathan Carl, has more on all of this. Good morning, John. Good morning, Amy. Predicting a Supreme Court vacancy is tricky business. Justices tend to be extremely secretive about their plans until they actually announce them. But we noticed quite a hint in a small Iowa newspaper, the Muscatine Journal, interviewed Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who told the paper, I would expect a resignation this summer. So why is that significant? 
Well, Chuck Grassley is the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. That's the committee that would hold the hearings on President Trump's next nominee. If there is anybody in Congress who would know about such things, it is Chuck Grassley. And more than that, Amy, this is consistent with what I have been hearing in conservative legal circles for weeks. That, that uh, Justice Kennedy has been telling friends and colleagues that he intends to retire this year, uh, possibly after the current term of the Supreme Court is up on June 30th. All right, so let's talk about that potential confirmation process. The president considered Gorsuch to be a shoe in for the Supreme Court, but we all know that ended up with Senate Republicans resorting to that nuclear option, changing the rules to get him confirmed. So how does that affect how another vacancy would be filled? Well, the nuclear option has been exercised. That means the rules are changed. So the next justice would also require only 51 votes. There are 52 Republicans. They have the votes to do this. But, Amy, replacing uh, Justice Scalia with Gorsuch did not alter the balance of power on the court. There are now four conservatives, there are four liberals, and right in the middle as the swing vote in many, many cases is Justice Kennedy. So that means replacing him with a solid conservative could significantly, decisively alter the balance of power on the Supreme Court. I expect that the next confirmation battle will be a much bigger, more high-profile fight, even with that nuclear option exercised. All right, Jonathan Carl, we appreciate it. Thank you. Folks, that was a key key notice, if you remember, from the state of California is going to figure very prominently in any cases that come before the Supreme Court in the future, whether it's things regarding the immigration order, whether it's regarding the abortion issue, whether it's regarding religious liberty on campus. I mean, we've seen just even in the last few days what has happened with a conservative commentator, not personally my cup of tea in a lot of ways, but someone like Ann Coulter, who was banned by the University of Berkeley, again, a publicly funded campus, they basically exercised what is called a heckler's veto. And they said, well, you know, we, we are having trouble finding a, a safe location for this speech to go on because we're worried about the protesters. So we're just going to cancel the event. Rather than saying, no, this is Berkeley. This is the birth of the free speech movement in the United States back in the 60s. Rather than saying we're going to make sure that even speech that we disagree with is allowed to be protected and is allowed to be said so that we can have a vigorous discussion and back and forth on different controversial ideas, rather than that being the case, that has been allowed to veto the rights of a conservative to speak. Now, again, like I said, I may not personally love Ann Coulter's uh, rhetoric. I may not love her style, but I do think that she has a First Amendment right to speak on a publicly funded university. And this is something that even Bernie Sanders agreed with. I, I was actually surprised. Kudos to him. He said, no individual should be banned from speaking on a public college campus. And he said, I disagree with Ann Coulter. I think her views are abhorrent, but she should be allowed to speak on the campus of Berkeley. This is why this upcoming battle is going to be so important for replacing Anthony Kennedy. If, as you heard John Carl say, there is really going to actually be a new Supreme Court vacancy, potentially as early as the end of this summer. The Supreme Court term ends at the end of June, and it's quite possible that by July, we may have another Supreme Court vacancy. 
folks, when we come back, we're going to be talking not just about the Supreme Court, but again, we're going to bring things closer back to home. And we're going to talk about the state of California. We're going to talk about the importance of exercising your rights and making your voice heard. And we're going to be joined as soon as we come back by Greg Burt, who is the Director of Capital Engagement for California Family Council. And Greg has been really active the last few months meeting with legislators in Sacramento, and he has some key updates on why you need to speak out, especially tomorrow. Tuesday, the 25th, people need to hear your voice, and they're going to need to hear it a lot between now and the end of this legislative session in California. Listen in. We'll be right back here on Life, Family, Liberty. Welcome back to Life, Family, Liberty. This is Jonathan Keller from California Family Council. Happy to be back with you. Joined again for our weekly segment with my coworker, Greg Burt, our Director of Capital Engagement for California Family Council. Also helps lead up a lot of our communications efforts across the state. Greg, you're calling in actually today from Southern California, correct? That's right. Getting ready. I know you and I actually have some meetings. I'm getting ready to drive down and join you a little bit later today. We have uh, some key meetings with stakeholders. Uh, We've been meeting with churches, with pastors, and uh, meeting with other key leaders of organizations like Christian schools, pro-life organizations that are affected by some of the bills we're dealing with. So off the bat, let's talk about that one key bill that is really maybe one of the most important ones we're facing this year. In some ways, it's actually more important than SB 1146 from last year. Tell us about AB 569. AB 569 is similar to last year's SB 1146. The legislators are targeting codes of conduct within Christian organizations that they don't like and that they are labeling as discriminatory. So this particular bill is going to outlaw uh, codes of conduct for any employer, including religious institutions, churches, schools, and nonprofits, it's specifically outlawing, outlawing a code of conduct uh, for employees that would prohibit abortion, contraception, and uh, any codes of conduct prohibiting sex outside of marriage. So it has a huge impact, a uh, huge violation of religious liberty, and we are trying to sound the alarm. Yeah, this is AB 569, introduced by Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher, and she really... Greg, I know we met with her in her office. She professes herself to be a uh, follower of Christ. She's Catholic. She has a huge mural of Our Lady of Guadalupe hanging on her wall. And yet she is carrying this bill that is sponsored and written by NARAL Pro-Choice California. That's right. And it really is an egregious bill. We talked about this with some church people yesterday that were asking me for help on their bylaws. And I told them, look, you may have to really consider adding a section to your bylaws so that you have some legal standing and legal ground to protect yourselves if a bill like AB 569 passes. Greg, the the example that I shared with people that is really just egregious, imagine if you have a youth pastor at your church or at your Christian school. Maybe he's a director of the choir team or he's a math professor or something. If his 17-year-old daughter gets pregnant, he can take her to Planned Parenthood and, you know, basically force her to have an abortion. And if the school finds out about it, the school can do nothing to stop that. The school can also do nothing to even discipline or reprimand this teacher because, according to the bill, 
any employee or dependent of an employee that exercises their quote-unquote reproductive rights shields them completely from any sort of disciplinary action in any form whatsoever. Yeah. No, and what I've been telling folks is, is maybe we don't really consider how important codes of conduct are to uh, our ability to form or, or organizations or even setting up our churches. Codes of conduct allow us to form groups, establish our mission and our beliefs, and then gather around us, hire employees who actually believe and practice those beliefs. And if we can't practice Christian beliefs on sexuality, they're more or less, I've been telling folks, the, this law is more or less outlawing our ability to follow Jesus' teachings on sexual morality and gender. Right. Um, and how is that not a violation of religious liberty? Right. And if you think, if you put the shoe on the other foot and you think about this in almost any other context, if you think about Mm -hmm. another organization, let's say the Human Rights Campaign or Equality California, nobody... Or NARAL. Or NARAL, yeah. Nobody would think that those organizations should, if they found out over the course of employment that one of their employees was privately advocating for or uh, engaging in activities that went directly contradictory to the mission of their organization, no one would think that it was unreasonable that they should be able to say, we have freedom of association, we have our own set of beliefs and codes of conduct, and I'm sorry, but you know we're going to have to part ways. Well, this is a complete double standard, and it says that we're carving out this one area. We're carving out surgical and chemical abortions, and we're saying that if those are in play, then you are shielded from any sort of disciplinary or administrative action. I was going to say one more thing. The very reason we have religious freedom in the First Amendment is to protect beliefs that are unpopular. And I realize that beliefs about sexuality are not very popular in California, but from the beginning of this country, the Constitution has protected unpopular beliefs. So hopefully that's still the case in California going forward. Absolutely. Well, Greg, we have just about 90 seconds left in this segment, but... There are two other key bills that are being heard tomorrow. I know I'm going to be there speaking out against SB 179 and SB 219. Both of these bills deal with the whole idea of pronouns and gender. Can you just really quickly give us a recap, especially on SB 179 and why this is such a danger and a threat to Californians? Sure. Uh, SB 179 is the Change Your Gender Bill. Uh, This bill will completely change the meanings of the words male and female, um, Currently, it's a physical description of reality that's listed on driver's license and birth certificates. But going forward, it's simply going to be a description of feelings and self-identification. So specifically, the bill uh, makes uh, it easier uh, to change your gender. And so on the driver's license, you will be choosing between three options, male, female, and non-binary, which is uh, a term that for those who don't want to identify as either sex, And you can check either box, and you won't have to provide any proof that you are that gender, or you won't have to provide, nobody can ask you any questions about it. And again, folks, basically, rather than it being a a binary male-female choice or a male-female description and acknowledgement of reality, what we've had for 
all of recorded human history, at least on official documents, you're now going to have essentially male, female, and other. You're going to have a third gender. And Greg, you and I talked about this, but it's really dangerous. If, if you have that third descriptor, where do those people go to the restroom? Where, where are they prohibited from going to the restroom? Where, how, do you, how do you protect safe spaces for women, girls, and everything else? It's, it's really dangerous. <sighs> Greg, we'll have to have you on again soon. Thanks so much. We'll be back shortly on Life, Family, Liberty. Back with you here on Life, Family, Liberty, a podcast and radio show from California Family Council. You can always find out more about what we're doing online, our main website, californiafamily.org. You can subscribe and listen to any of these episodes, past episodes or future episodes, on lifefamilyliberty.net. You can listen on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, with your Android phone and podcast app, with iTunes, through the Apple podcast app, lifefamilyliberty.net. Very busy day. We talked with Caleb Dalton from Alliance Defending Freedom. We talked with Greg Burt just now from California Family Council, our director of capital engagement. And we also talked about the brewing war in the Democratic Party between the hard, hard left abortion fringe that is abortion absolutist, abortion now, abortion tomorrow, abortion forever, was what I saw one person on Twitter say. Uh, and then you have the people who are desperately concerned. They're still very pro-abortion, but they're desperately concerned about a governing majority, people like Nancy Pelosi. Again, if, I won't play the whole clip, but you remember she said to Chuck Todd yesterday, of course you can be a Democrat and against abortion. She mentioned, I've, I've served with many pro-life Democrats over the years. Well, here's the problem. I retweeted that statement from MSNBC yesterday, where they quoted Nancy Pelosi, and they said, Pelosi, of course you can be a Democrat and against abortion. I retweeted that and said, sure, you just can't hold any elected office, have your views represented in the DNC platform, or speak at a national convention. That's the reality. Supposedly, I mean, you can register as a Democrat. They'll take your vote. They'll cash your check if you want to make a donation. But they will not represent you or your values in any way whatsoever. Now, this is very different, by the way, from the Republicans. And uh, frankly, this is something that I kind of disagree with. I, I was disappointed to see pro-abortion speakers that have risen in prominence in the Republican Party. I've been disappointed to see people that are soft or even opposed to religious liberty speak at the Republican National Convention. Excuse me. But this is something where at least you can recognize Republicans have a broader tent and they're willing to actually acknowledge the reality that the pro-life issue is becoming much more important across the country. The reason it's becoming much more important across the country is because the science is changing. We had the March for Science just on Saturday. The real reality of science, the March for Science that I attended, was in January. It's the one where we acknowledge the humanity of every human life inside the womb. That's the real March for Science, and sadly, that's the side of history, that's the side of science that Nancy Pelosi and Bernie Sanders and Tom Perez find themselves on the wrong side of. Folks, we'll be back. Join us. Find out more at lifefamilyliberty.net. We'll see you next week.